The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. It really takes a good war of aggression to show you who your enemies are, or that they are everywhere. Vladimir Potanin, one of the richest men in Russia and a trustee of the Guggenheim Museum, was removed from that board. Who knew the Guggenheim had oligarchs within their circular hallways? Also, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, you know them as MIT, is severing ties with a research university it helped to establish in Russia. There are Russian connections everywhere. I didn't know about them. Now I do. And there are also entities on the U.S. side that are proudly saying yet to Russia, yet. For instance, I read this, video game developer CDPR has announced that it will no longer be selling its games, which include Witcher 3 and Cyberpunk 2077 to Russia or Belarus. <laughs> That'll show you, no Witcher 3, Belarus. The International Badminton Federation will no longer be doing business with Russia. Likewise, FIBA, the International Basketball Federation, has announced specifically that it will be bouncing Russia from its three-on-three basketball competitions. I checked. Russia, though ranked third or fourth internationally in three-on-three basketball. They might dodge this one because there isn't a three-on-three basketball FIBA tournament set for another two months. So maybe, you know, they could look at the errors of their ways and try to get back in with FIBA three-on-three basketball. The Batman will not be seen in Russia. I'll read you the statement. In light of the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, Warner Media is pausing its release of feature film hashtag the Batman in Russia, a Warner Media spokesman said today, quote, we hope for a swift and peaceful resolution to this tragedy, meaning you're not being seen in Russia. No, no, the whole Ukraine war, swift, peaceful, possibly involving grappling hooks, smoke grenades, body armor with the nipples included. And what's worse, Warner Media is not just pulling the Batman from Russia, It's going back and taking the Haley Berry Catwoman movie and injecting that into Russia. So that'll learn them. Q-tips have announced they will only be provided to Russians who agree to go around the ear and not inside. Also, I read that Cape Cinema, located on Route 6A in Cape Cod, has announced that it is canceling all of its Russian ballet screenings for the foreseeable future. These swans will have to be found on other lakes. So if you want Russians in your Cape Cod art house movie theater, in your badminton, or in your Batman audience, it's yet, yet, and not yet. On the show today, I spiel about that climate report that has been characterized as beyond code red. We're going to need a bigger color coding system. But first... At least one major city in Ukraine has been taken by the Russians, and assaults on civilian centers via artillery are becoming more constant. There are also reports, credible reports, in fact, confirmed reports of some Russian transport planes shot down. Yesterday, a Romanian MiG and helicopter operating in nearby Ukrainian airspace were lost, unclear if it was by accident or something more nefarious, but it should be noted 
that during this entire engagement, there have been no known naval casualties. Russian amphibious units have used the Black Sea to gain access to the country, but a naval fight? No, not even no. It seems almost anachronistic, bordering on unreasonable. And that amidst a horrible international story is a bright spot. But I also want to note it's a consistent and predictable bright spot. We are in an unprecedented age of peace on the seas, and the United States is to credit. Greg Easterbrook's new book talks about this Pax Maritimum, that's my phrase, or his phrase, this new Blue Age. That's the name of his book, The Blue Age. Greg Easterbrook, up next. The ocean, 75% of the Earth's surface, yet it makes up, what would you say, 1% of the conscious thoughts of most people on the Earth? The ocean is incredibly important for centuries, whoever controlled the sea, controlled their own destiny, and that's not untrue today. It's just that we either take it for granted or an odd thing has happened. We as Americans came to dominate it so much that it receded from our imagination, putting it back in the forefront of our minds and in fact labeling the state of the ocean in a way that gives us clarity is Greg Easterbrook. His new book is called The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. Greg, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. So as you know, you're one of my favorite authors and wrote one of my favorite books. And the way you look at the world to me is uh, fascinating and always clarifying. And I didn't know, I've read your environmental books and, you know, just your books on progress and the paradox thereof. I didn't know you were so fascinated in the ocean, were you? Or was this a, I, I, you know, I, reading this, I imagine maybe Greg is a, uh, a nautical sort from way back, and I never knew it. Are you? Uh, I'll explain the origin of the book in this way. Uh, as a writer, I'm quirky in, in that I write two basic forms, serious public policy, and The Blue Age is a book of serious public policy. I also write literary fiction. Um, and my agent has been telling me for 30 years that I should pick one or the other, and I never have. <laughs> um, I just finished novel number four. We'll see what happens. But my previous nonfiction book from 2008 was called It's Better Than It Looks. And that was sort of the summary of my thinking about public policy that started with a book called A Moment on the Earth 25 years ago. And it's better than it looks, proposes, as the title sounds, that the condition of the world is better than people think. And there's a chapter in it about how people think war is increasing, actually war is declining. And we're recording this as Russia is moving into Ukraine. So that may change. But in the last generation, war has declined in, in, in occurrence and in intensity, casualties, in every way. And there's one paragraph, and here's the answer, and in that section saying, and in my lifetime, there's been no, there's been no major naval battle, even though in the previous 500 years, naval battles were almost constant. So my editor looked at me and said, there is your next book. Really? And that's, that's how Blue Age uh, started. 
Yeah. That one that one paragraph, the pa- and the reason it was one paragraph graph is that if you're examining a phenomenon and what you've come across is that this once common phenomenon isn't happening, how many how much ink do you really spill on that? Well, the blue age shows that it can be quite a lot, but just in terms of human conception, we do kind of you've written about this uh, a lot. We do kind of take for granted progress and then we even forget its progress. And so the story of the oceans is a story of great great progress, not just in terms of technology, but in terms of peace. Yes. Look at the last 500 years, constant fighting on the oceans, in many cases more than on land. We're not aware of it because battles on land, there are monuments, there are centipaths. We go to visit the places where the soldiers are buried. Battles at sea, the ships sink, the sailors' bodies disappear. There's no physical evidence that the battle ever happened. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, when he was president, said that incessant fighting, there's a quote, incessant fighting on the oceans has been the primary theme of human history. And that's really true. But in the last 75 years, there, there was one relatively brief, although bloody battle during the Falklands War. In the last 75 years, the seas have been peaceful. You gotta go all the way back to the Phoenicians to find a 75-year period where the seas are peaceful. So since the seas are peaceful, we just ignore it. We're mm-hmm. not aware of the United States' role in it. This is mainly a gift that the United States has given to the world. Since intellectuals are not allowed to say anything nice about the United States, we don't mention this. We don't also notice what's become possible with peaceful seas. International trade that has reduced poverty almost everywhere, especially in Asia. We're so much better off with international trade that and we don't appreciate this. And we appreciate it a little bit now because supply chains are disrupted and suddenly we're feeling a pinch. But in general, the fact that oceans are peaceful allows for international trade, which benefits almost everyone, including almost everyone in the Ohio Valley. Beyond not allowed to say anything nice, I suppose there's some uh, strain of people that only say things nice, uh, regardless of the truth, but about the United States. But I think what happens is um, there's this tendency to say, you know, the seas are so peaceful. The idea of a naval battle is so anachronistic. Why are we even spending this much money on the Navy? Which comes out to, I think you say, $700 per American. Per person. And, per, yeah. yeah, and really what a great bargain that is. It is a great bargain. Uh, I think we'd make a really bad mistake if we withdrew from the oceans of the world. And uh, as I show in some detail in the Blue Age, we're not, we not only have lots of ships, of course we have lots of ships, but they're forward deployed. They're not based on the ports of the United States. They're based in ports all over the world. Many nations, Britain, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, have attempted to forward deploy navies. We are the only nation in world history that has succeeded in doing it. We're we're hardly even aware that we've done it. But the result is international trade that makes us all better off. And uh, all of your listeners are, are... are smart and well-read. They know that just before World War One, people will say, we're saying, oh, international trade will prevent war. And then there was a horrible war. But in the age of seaborne global trade has so far prevented war. Before world, just before World War One, 5% of the world's GDP was trade. Today, 26% of the world's GDP is trade. It's a huge difference. It's made almost all the world peaceful. It's reduced poverty in Asia in a way that nobody, including Bernie Sanders, appreciates in any way. And I think it's in some jeopardy now as a naval arms race starts with the Chinese. 
And the reason, it is true that the reason that the United States has achieved peace is the old idea of peace through strength. And peace through strength hasn't worked 100% in land battles or to dissuade terrorists. But on the sea, it really has. No one dares take on the United States with its massive fleet and massive technology and more nuclear subs and aircraft carriers than everyone else in the world combined. Yes. Uh, roughly in the 1970s, the Soviets gave up on competing with us at sea, conceded the oceans to us. Everybody else gave up. The United States has 11 nuclear-powered supercarriers, which is 11 more than the rest of the world combined. Nobody <laughs> else has got one. The Chinese are building one. It will probably be the only one they ever build. Supercarriers are becoming a little anachronistic. But we, our Navy is so much more powerful than all other navies combined that no one else is even trying except for now the Chinese. The last 10 years, they've been building ships very fast, warships, also commercial ships very fast. And this naval dominance, you answered this a little bit, but if I gave you the uh, elevator pitch and you're on the elevator with maybe a Bernie Sanders staffer or, or someone who will ask this question, because I know it's in people's mind. Okay, we have naval dominance and what have we really gotten for it? What's the answer? The answer is global trade, higher living standards here, lower inflation until this year. Remember, supply chain disruption. What was the first effect? Inflation started. And we have reduction of poverty in, in Asia. Bernie Sanders constantly says free trade ruins jobs. Free trade is bad for the world. When Bernie Sanders was born, 50% of the world lived in extreme poverty by the World Bank definition. Today, 10% lives in extreme poverty. Right. So not to pick on Bernie Sanders. I mean, Sherrod Brown, Rob Portman will say this, you know, to appeal to their Ohio constituents and every paleocon from uh, Pat Buchanan on forward will have some version of this. But the idea of free trade hurting Americans does almost always just glide right past the humanitarian benefit. And one of the reasons is that we as Americans have our perception of free trade. And we know, for instance, this is something you write about, the Port of Los Angeles has gotten a, a lot bigger. And I, I'd like you to try to put into words how much bigger. But the fascinating thing is where it ranks in the world, even as the Port of Los Angeles just exploded in capacity and in, in, in the number of ships and the number of containers it could take, it has shrunk just as much in the, in the world rankings. Yes. Uh, it, the, the movie, uh, you, everybody's seen the 1954 movie On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando. I, I won't do a Brando voice, but he could have been a contender. Uh, yeah. When that movie came out, the two most important, the two top ranking ports in the world by volume were New Jersey and New York, Newark, New Jersey and New York. And that movie set in the in the, the, the Newark ports of Hoboken. And there was only one Asian port on the top 10 list. Now, nine of the 10 top ports in the world are, are in Asia. The highest ranking American port is the Port of Los Angeles, where there's a chapter in the book about the Port of Los Angeles. And I, I was hanging around there three years ago, long before it was on the front page of the newspaper. Port of Los Angeles, it's, it's shipping container numbers have increased tenfold in the last 20 years. And with each passing year, it's dropped lower down in the list of ports in the world because other ports are increasing so much faster. But in, but I say in, in, in the Blue Age, in general, this rule holds almost everywhere in the world. Any place you find a busy port, you find poverty decreasing. And that's pretty much an iron law of the of the last generation. 
And in fact, <laughs> one of the uh, little niche side uh, ways to make money from the port of Los Angeles is to sell the idea of what a port is, but no longer really is to movie makers and, right. and by extension to the American public. Yes, they're, they're, the port of Los Angeles moves containers amazingly fast and efficiently. They're trying to speed up even more because now they have a backlog of ships in, in, in queue waiting to get a docking berth assigned. And, and, and they have a lot of automated straddlers to do this without people being involved. There's, they are very spooky to watch. Uh, but there's one corner of the port of Los Angeles that looks like 1954 when Marlon Prando was filming his movie. They've left it that way for Hollywood production companies. They rent it out to movies that want to show what people think a port looks like. You know, individual brawny guys pulling up, pulling up cases one by one while dry ice mists swarms around their field. And they make some money doing that, but it also perpetuates a stereotype of what ports used to be and no longer are. So you mentioned China as you must. And perhaps the Blue Age, which is your term for the peace and prosperity that we've had on the sea, is threatened uh, by China. And this is because China, just how it's situated, unlike Russia, cold weather port, China naturally will see its influence, um, the path towards influence as a seaward path. So they have innovation, they have motivation, and I think they have taken some lessons from the United States, right? Well, the, Ch the Chinese leaders look at the United States and say, the American people may not appreciate this, but America is the first nation ever to achieve total sea power. And look what it's done for their economy. So we want the same thing too. And because of the way China, you look at the geography of China, they have one point of access to the rest of the world is the South China Sea. The South China Sea really should be called the South of China Sea, because if you look at a map, that's what you see. If you sail due south from Chinese ports, the South China Sea is, is where you end up. And a lot of it is in waters can be, that can reasonably be claimed by the Philippines, by Indonesia, by, by Vietnam, and in the part of it can reasonably be claimed by the Japanese. Uh, the, the law of the sea treaty does not resolve those disputes. So for the, for the moment, the Chinese are trying to increase their military muscle to simply control that area. We don't like that. We've complained about it. International courts have complained about it. But the Chinese look at the South China Sea roughly the way we look at the Gulf of Mexico. We expect to have completely unfettered control of the Gulf of Mexico. And if the Chinese sent carrier strike groups into the Gulf of Mexico and said, don't worry, we're just here for peacekeeping purposes, we would be very unhappy about it. Well, that's kind of what we're doing in the South China Sea right now. What is China's game in terms of naval buildup? Do they want to take the United States on and actually engage in naval battles if they have uh, a more robust navy than they do now and they get that aircraft carrier and maybe increase you know, the number of all their ships and destroyers? What does that give China? I hope that doesn't happen. And I say in the Blue Age that although, yes, there's been great power war many times in the past, there has never been a great power relationship like there is between the United States and China. The Chinese drive us crazy, and not just because they're ruining the NBA, they drive us crazy for lots of reasons. We drive the Chinese crazy for lots of reasons, but we're each dependent on each other. I, I quote 
a professor at the Naval War College in Rhode Island, is saying if there was war between the United States and China on the ocean, what would victory even look like? Even if the United States won every battle, how would we come out ahead? Even if the Chinese won every battle, how would they come out ahead? Both economies would collapse if we went to war at sea. I think the Chinese are smart enough to know this. But what they do want is they want us to acknowledge their 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 hegemony over the South China Sea and pull our supercarriers out, not just ours, but the, 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 the Brits have just launched the two largest ships in the history of the Royal Navy. They're both carriers and not supercarriers, but they're they're very potent ships. And what's the first thing they did? Send them to the South China Sea to try to intimidate the Chinese. What they do want is for us to show them more respect. The, Ch- the Communist Party in China has become more authoritarian in the last 15 years. And one way they're sustaining it is by essentially saying to their own people, it's too soon for free speech. It's too soon for freedom of religion. First, we have to have military parity with the United States. Then we can talk about free speech. That's what a lot of the internal debate in China is like right now. So overall, your work, which I think I've read, I've not read the novels, I will admit, but I've read the nonfiction. I've read so many of your magazine essays and reporting. The through line is something like, if I told an America of pick a date in the past 20, 30, 40 years ago, in this case, maybe 150 years ago, that the situation today would be as it is, they would not believe it. It would be a blessing. So in the case of the Navy, the naval officers who've ever sent their uh, young boys to the shores of Tripoli and elsewhere, they would fell over the state of the Navy. And yet here we are in the present where our ancestors would be thrilled and we're less than thrilled. We either don't notice it or dwell on the negative or maybe powerful forces convince us otherwise. Why is that? Why is that in general? Just a quirk of psychology or is there something else at play? An interviewer asked me about a year ago how I wanted my obituary to read. Mm -hmm. And I responded by saying, do you know something that I don't? Um, (laughs) But I told him that I I thought my obituary should say that the aspect of my nonfiction that made people angry was the fact that I'm an optimist. I've written four books on the optimism thesis now, starting with Moment on the Earth in 1995, which was Optimism as Applies to Environmental uh, conditions. And then the the, uh, the one that I know you like, The Progress Paradox, which is about optimism in social science research. And then a book called Sonic Boom from 2009, right at the trough of the Great Recession, saying that actually the global economy is going to be just fine. And that book turned out to be right. And then it all built up to the, to the book, It's Better Than It Looks, four years ago, arguing that, of course, not everything, but most things for most people have gotten better. And, and, and Westerners in general, Americans in particular, are just determined not to believe this. And maybe it's some sort of weird evolutionary advantage. When you're constantly upset and anxious and angry about society, maybe you work harder. That, that's the closest thing to an answer that I can propose, because Americans are so much better off objectively, even than they were a generation ago, than certainly 100 years ago. But you hear well-educated people who live at a very high material standard and enjoy almost complete freedom in their lives saying, oh, my grandparents had it so much better than me. The the desire to feel sorry for ourselves uh, is very strong, and it goes far back into American history. 
Greg Easterbrook is the author of, well, many a book. His latest is The Blue Age, How the U.S. Navy Created Global Prosperity and Why We're in Danger of Losing It. Thanks once again, Greg. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. There's been a lot of news out of Ukraine in the last few days, a pressing and immediate horror show. Our attention on the devastation and suffering in the near term may have obscured a truth about the long term. And it's a truth not just for Ukrainians, but for all of us. We're doomed. The impacts of climate change are here and they're getting worse. And according to a landmark United Nations report, Not only are some of these impacts worse than previously known, some may already be irreversible. That was PBS reporting on the IPCC report on climate change released on Monday. The message was the same everywhere, that climate change is ongoing, it's throughout the world, it's documentable, irreversible, worsening. Want to hear that bad news with an English accent? Here's Sky News. The UN predicts unavoidable and irreversible impacts on humans, animals, and the ecosystems they rely on, even if temperature rises are limited to a best-case scenario. And every single report on the bad report added this, the money quote from UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. So a thought struck me. There's nothing worse than being a climate denier, right? The evidence is in. You don't believe it. You call it a Chinese hoax or a prattle on about clean coal. You are part of the problem. We can all agree on that. You have to recognize the scientific consensus of the world's top experts and the media who covers them and know what they're talking about. We all agree. I agree. That's why to be a climate non-denier, to accept the science... Listen to everything we heard, and I just played you snippets, but if you read all the articles and listened to all the coverage, to accept the science is to, at this point, to conclude that it's too late. The last report before this one by Working Group One, that report was called Code Red. This one I've seen titled as Beyond Code Red. So to go back to August, The UN issued a report that was described, like I said, as code red for humanity. Some quotes from that, the alarm bells are deafening, the evidence is irrefutable. Then they had the Glasgow conference, and going in, these were said to be the stakes of the Glasgow conference. The warning comes as world leaders are to meet at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow next week to try to commit to a more ambitious climate pledge. It could be the last chance to reach the goal of the 2015 Paris Climate Accord to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius. So Reuters there setting it up. It could be the last chance. Glasgow comes and goes. The report is out on the last chance summit we just had. And the report says there are no more chances. So unless you're a denier of what's going on with the climate, you have got to conclude that it's hopeless. I have not heard any hope. Have you heard hope? 
That's the message, right? If that's not the message, why are they drumming it into us that that's the message? I could link to about 3,000 websites that brilliantly and vividly lay out the costs of our worsening climate. There's a great one that The Guardian's done called Climate Disaster Is Here. You gotta see the pictures of flooding and the charts and their worst case scenarios. They got a picture of a zookeeper bathing an elephant in Karachi. I'm sold. We are D-double-O-oomed. But wait, we're not doomed. Or I think we can be less doomed than the Karachi elephant would lead us to believe. Code Red was a report from Group 1 of this latest iteration, putting together the IPCC report. Atlas of Suffering, that was the report from Working Group 2. Let's uh, look ahead to Working Group 3's mission. It's called Mitigation of Climate Change. Well, I guess they're going to cancel that Working Group based on what we just heard. I thought we were, quote, beyond Code Red. How can we still mitigate? Well, I think we can still mitigate. It's not what I think. It's what the scientists think. I think we will mitigate. Call me an optimist. Or if I'm wrong, don't call me anything because we'll all be living on an inhospitable husk of quartz and carbon. But the tone of the coverage really does emphasize the hopelessness of it all. It's too late. It's past time. There's no going back. These sort of phrases, those kind of images. I guess for too long, too many people were in absolute denial. And now, as a corrective, the media, with the UN leading the way, is screaming at them, grabbing them by the shoulders and shaking them. Don't you get it? Good God, man! Don't you get it? Look what you've done! And so we're all getting it. It being the pictures and the framings and the facts, it's certainly the facts, that climate change is here, it's changed the world, and it has its victims, and will continue to do so. But that doesn't mean that there is not mitigation. There are more scientists working on the problem than ever before, and they're motivated, and they are sure they can help. Like scientists who worked on a cure for COVID-19, like I'm now going to mention the natural disaster of my lifetime that I was told, we were all told, would doom us, HIV AIDS. I remember the projections. I remember Time Magazine saying that a million Americans would die of HIV. Last year, 5,000 died with HIV as an underlying factor. The best article I read that aligned with my perception of how to contextualize the, quote, hopelessness of it all was by Rebecca Solnit who said, as someone who has survived cancer, that we should think of climate change like that. She says, let's hope this treatment has survivability. Let's work for best case scenarios. And that's where I am. Maybe for most people, the images of fires in Australia or cities underwater are necessary. The perception of those supplying the images is we have to scare the complacent into action. I guess that must work for some. I think more likely it's that the impassioned people of the world and the informed people of the world who want their fellow citizens to take it seriously are using the bludgeoning attack uh, to sort of punish them a little bit for getting the people who haven't gotten it, for getting it wrong for this long. They're mad at the ignorant or the slow on the uptake or the people, you know, who voted for climate deniers. So they want to shove it in their face. Plus there's an argument for it. You know, one group is saying that the other group doesn't get it. So the louder we shout, the more justified we are.
It's a little bit of blaming others for the problem, which they deserve the blame, but we all deserve the blame. I generally think a climate-aware American consumer and a climate-unaware American consumer, someone who's at the 80th percentile of awareness and someone who's at the I don't know, 30th percentile, they have very similar carbon footprints. But, you know, Karachi elephant tactics are not where I am. And I think there are many others like me. You don't need to blast me with brush fire porn. I get it. Climate change, real and happening. But just as you wouldn't give a cancer patient a brochure with an illustration of a leg lost to cancer or an empty eye socket with an eye lost to cancer, you need to be practical and forward-looking and, yeah, a little hopeful. And you wouldn't invite a well-informed 16-year-old who's really, really worried about oncology and done done a lot of research by her own. You wouldn't make her a national, international hero. You wouldn't encourage her to scream at cancer patients. I mean, maybe you would. Maybe that works for some people. I think it's counterproductive to a lot more people. I get that in my brochure to a cancer patient analogy. You certainly have to impress upon the cancer patient that you got to quit smoking. And you might want to think about quitting your job at the Coke plant. But for most of us, that process is happening as fast as it can. So therefore, there are a lot of different audiences with a lot of different messages. It's fine to emphasize the catastrophe. I would also like to see a lot of messages of practicality. I do understand that we might have to wait until the mitigating work of working group three to hear all those messages. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the coxswain of HMS Peachfish. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Oomperu depperu duperu. And thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>